So we've come as far as chapter 11. We started chapter 11 last week and then uh, we kind of went off on a tangent, but it wasn't really a tangent because it's important background to understand the events that we're reading about at the beginning of chapter 11, um, which we'll just have a quick refresh in a moment. But let's, uh, as we always do, just commit this time of study to the Lord. Oh, Father, speak to us now. Lord, what a privilege even that we could say that, that we could ask that, that you would speak to us through your word. But Father, your word says of itself that it is living and powerful. And Lord, it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And the Father, your word also tells us that it's not the natural mind that understands these things, but it's the spiritual. Lord, that the natural mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And so Father, help us now just to understand, Lord, not just the mechanics, the details, the history, but Lord, how these things apply to us. Lord, what you're saying to us right now and what you would have of each of us. Uh, Lord, that your word would speak directly into our circumstances this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you remember, we've got as far as the hour. Which hour? Well, the hour that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 12. There Jesus spoke to the disciples and says, The hour has come. It says that the Son of Man should be glorified. That wasn't just a trivial statement. It was a statement that now is the time. This is the moment. All through Jesus' ministry, he says things like, the hour has not yet come, and please don't make me known, etc. And all the time he was hiding himself from from this uh, recognition uh, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Son of Man. Uh, And he says uh, later in that uh, chapter, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, no. He says, because it's for this cause I came to this hour. So he said, I'm not going to ask God to, to spare me from this because this is the reason I've come. This was the sole reason for Jesus coming. Now, all the miracles, all the teaching, all of those things, they're great, they have their place, they're important. But they're put to one side. Because this is the reason that Jesus came. For this hour, for this moment, and we see as we start to go through what we refer to as Passion Week, that Jesus had come to do the will of his Father, and it was to give his life. That was the reason he'd come, as a, a, a sacrifice. As Adrian was sharing, talking about the, 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 the Day of Atonement. Jesus came to be the one who would make that final atonement no more does the blood of bulls and goats need to be shed no more trips up to jerusalem every year to sacrifice animals because jesus was coming to fulfill all that those feasts spoke about to be the one to complete this work the the, the prophecies that began right back in genesis that the seed of the woman would come and now jesus is here jesus is on earth he's in jerusalem this is the moment. Now, again, we looked at this timeline last week, and we'll be journeying through this, that on the Saturday evening, as the Sabbath ended, and Jesus makes this short journey from wherever they'd been staying to Bethany, to the house of Mary and Lazarus, uh, and that's where Jesus stays. He has an evening meal there. And then the next day is Palm Sunday. And that was the very day, as prophesied by Daniel, that we saw that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. As we said, for the first time in his ministry, Jesus allows himself now to be worshipped. In fact, he arranges the whole event. He sends his disciples off to go and get this young donkey that had never been uh, ridden on before, brings this donkey back, and uh, intentionally setting up to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah. Uh, and, and knowing exactly what he's doing. So, again, everything centers now on this one week. In fact, it's interesting if you look at John's Gospel, because in John's Gospel, the first half of his Gospel up to chapter 11 covers three and a half years. The rest of John's Gospel covers one week. Although the rest of John's Gospel, the, the remaining chapters, just centered on this one week. You start to see how important this time was. As you said, Jesus had come to do the will of his Father, to give his life a ransom for many. Um, and it's only on this very specific day, on Palm Sunday, that he arranges this whole event, as we've seen already. And allows himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, the Prince. That's what the prophecy that Gabriel had given to Daniel was saying, but as a, as a part of this, Jesus then rebukes, and we get this in Luke's account, Jesus rebukes the Jews for not knowing what the day was. 
You see, the Jews should have been familiar with Scripture. It, it amazes me that people so quickly dismiss prophecy. And they think, oh, oh, we don't need to know about that. You know, so many times you read through, in fact, even this week, just going through reading with Marla, uh, we're going through Daniel at the moment, um, and the prophecies are given that we might know, that we might understand. You know, and all through the New Testament, Paul tells us, brethren, I, I would not let you be in darkness. You know, we're to understand, we're to know these things. And Jesus frequently was talking about understanding what is coming. And yet so many in the church seem to think the prophecy is something that, you know, we put to one side. It's almost like a bit taboo. We shouldn't talk about it. It was, I'm not going to mention uh, Rick Warren's name, but in a book that he wrote some time ago, he made the comment that when the disciples asked Jesus about prophecy, he quickly changed the subject. Uh, he didn't. Uh, it's just total fabrication. And yet so many people read those things uh, and thought that, oh, well, that must be true then. And so we don't need to worry about prophecy. You know, for every prophecy of Jesus' first coming, of which, of course, there were many, it's been estimated that there's at least eight prophecies of his second coming. You know, and we're living in these days when these things are being fulfilled around us. It's important that we understand it. Now, getting back to this, Jesus rebukes the Jews for not knowing the time of their visitation, as it says in Luke 19, 44. The day that they were being visited by the Messiah. It had been recorded. It was in their, their scripture. But they'd missed it. They were too intent on following their traditions and so on that they'd forgotten to treat the word of God with the respect that it deserves. And so often we find that our traditions get in the way. And, you know, it's easy to look at denominational churches and, and see the tradition there. But, you know, we're guilty of tradition too. We find our own ways of making tradition, things that we repeatedly do. And, you know, we need to always be reassessing and coming back and letting the scripture itself just be that standard and that guide all the time. That blindness, as you said, has lasted 1,900 years now for Israel. There is a day coming, and I believe that the, the, the book of Joel is an incredible prophetic book speaking of these last three feasts of Israel, um, um, starting with uh, atonement, as we said, or the Jews are celebrating today. Um, but starting with that feast, their eyes will be opened and then once again they'll turn to the Lord. And it will conclude when Jesus will come back and tabernacle, dwell among us, the Feast of Tabernacles. The incredible model laid out, I believe, in the book of Joel for us of the feasts that are yet to come. Interesting, the first of the feasts were all fulfilled during Passion Week. And then one of them, a little bit later, um, um, the Feast of Harvest, Pentecost, 50 days later. We'll talk about these things more as we go forward. But... As we saw last week, this incredible prophecy given by Gabriel to Daniel that gives us an exact timeline that from the decree given by this Persian king, uh, Artaxerxes Longimonus, uh, on, in our calendar, the 14th of March, 445 BC, it was the first of Nisan that year for the Jews, uh, we're to have 173,880 days from that point until the Messiah, the king. And it's on that day when this, this prophecy concludes that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the king on that triumphal entry. Staggering. You know, just try and think 500 years into the future. We can't. We can't even imagine what the world will be like 50 years from now. I mean, in all probability, Jesus will be back and be ruling and reigning. But that aside, you couldn't imagine what the future would be if it wasn't for what we have revealed in Scripture. And yet Daniel gives us this detailed account of things that are going to take place. And to the letter, to the detail, to the day, they're fulfilled. And so we pick up where we left off last time. Verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now even the even time was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Now, Matthew and Luke record some details of some things that took place there. We'll come back to that in a short while. But what you find here is that Mark is very precise in recording these things. Now, again, Mark recording these things from uh, first-hand eyewitness accounts of Peter, uh, detailing what they did. So they've gone in, Palm Sunday, they get to the evening, and they come back out to Bethany. 
Okay, so there we are. We know in the evening, the Jewish day begins in the evening, they then go out to Bethany again. And then we're told in very precise details, and Mark's great for this because it helps you piece this together. And on the morrow, the next day, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. So now we know exactly where we are. We're now coming back in, just over the top of the hill, the Mount of Olives, back into Jerusalem. And we're told that Jesus was hungry. And we're told, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, okay, notice it has leaves, he came, if happily, he might find anything thereon, looking for some fruit. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard of it. They thought he's talking to trees now. This is strange. But there's a reason for this. You'll see in a moment. We'll come back to this. And then verse 15, And they carry on the journey past his fig tree, and they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple, just as he'd done the day before. But this time Mark records, And began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the the reaction of people that are there? They've heard of Jesus, and they probably heard that he was traveling towards Jerusalem. This incredible individual who'd been healing people and allowed children to come and sit in his lap and so on, and had taught the children, suddenly walks in and, and, and just almost seems to lose it, starts seeing these things around, and starts overthrowing the tables of the money chairs, money going everywhere, and the seats of them that sold doves, and seemingly the doves are being let out, flying everywhere, and you can imagine the commotion. And notice, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. So people are starting to walk through, and he's, he's just knocking things left, right, and center. You can just imagine the scene. Verse 17 says, And he taught... Sometimes Jesus needs to mix things up a little to get our attention, to get us listening. Because no doubt everybody was a little bit on edge at that point. All looking at him, wondering what's going to happen next. And he taught. You know, again, the same thing sometimes happens. Sometimes we wonder why we have such commotion, turmoil in our lives, and why does God allow certain things? Well, I would suggest it's because the Lord wants to teach you something. Because the Lord will never allow you to go through something where, as it were, things in your life are being turned upside down if he doesn't want to teach you. But he taught, saying unto them, is it not written? See what he does? Straight back to scripture. Because what happened is they got into their tradition. They'd allowed things in that weren't based upon scripture. They'd forgotten the meaning of the temple and what the temple meant. And how they should be and act in this place. Is it not written that my house, what a statement, shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, yes, he's quoting here from Scripture. But my house shall be called of all nations? Imagine how that had gone down amongst these pious Jews, suggesting that all nations would be able to come into this temple. That's almost, well, treacherous, isn't it? To say that to these Jews that other nations will come in here, make it a place of, of prayer. But he says, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, the money changers were doing a, what they presumed, presumed to be a, a reasonable job. It was fair because people would come to Jerusalem sometimes and they wouldn't necessarily bring a, a sheep with them for, for sacrifice because obviously the, trying to bring it on the journey wasn't easy, so they'd bring money. And then typically the money they'd have wasn't the currency that they needed, so they'd have to change that money so that they could buy a, a sheep for, for an offering. So we can easily justify why we do these things and justify why they were doing those things. But again, they totally missed the bigger picture. And the scribes and the chief priests, notice, heard it. On this occasion, they don't see it, they hear it. And sought how they might destroy it. This is in a final straw as far as they're concerned. They'd already had this issue just a little while before this where Lazarus had been raised from the dead and many had believed, including some of the leadership, 
And that was enough for them. They thought, you know, we're not having this man bring an insurrection against Rome and, and we might lose our place and so on in the nation. And so they'd started plotting. But this really now was it. You see, they didn't want to. We find that they didn't want to arrest Jesus during this period of time, during this time of, of these festivals. As we're just leading up to the Feast of Passover. This is why all these Jews were there. This is why these money changers were, were doing good business at this time. Because only a few days away was the Feast of Passover. Again, the scribes, the chief priests heard it and they saw how they might destroy him. They didn't want to take him. They didn't want to do it at this time. But then we're told, um, for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. You see, people don't walk out of here, and it's interesting that the Mark doesn't record that people went out speaking badly of Jesus because of what he'd done. It's almost like their eyes are open, and they're astonished at his doctrine and what he's saying. Now, Mark's account here records this, and it's the second time in two days that Jesus does this. Now, that's something you might not see straight off. But when you compare the gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke both tell us that on Palm Sunday, as he went into the temple, he turned over the tables and he does all these things. Mark puts it the next day. Now, some people will tell us, oh, there's a contradiction there. But there's not a contradiction. You see, Matthew, Luke, both tell us that Jesus did this when he first arrives Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And what we're told is on that occasion, Jesus cast out them that sold and brought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he quotes from Isaiah 56 verse 7 and Jeremiah 7 11. And we're told he also healed the blind and lame. And he answered the chief priests and the scribes who on that occasion, the day before on Palm Sunday, saw what was happening. They were present on Palm Sunday. And of course, they were incensed that the crowd were hailing him as the Messiah. We get all of that from Mark's account, from, from Matthew's account and from Luke's account. But in contrast, Mark records that the next day, Jesus goes back and they've all come back again. It's like, well, didn't think you were serious, Lord. <laughs> do we do those kind of things? Sometimes the Lord corrects us on something and then we go back to the same thing again. But they're back again. So Jesus again drives them out, quoting again these scriptures. But this time we're told, the Mark adds for us, in the words of Isaiah, that the temple would be called, of all nations, the house of prayer. Again, as I said, the shocking thought for the Jews, the Gentiles would have a claim on their beloved temple. In addition, Mark also records that on this occasion Jesus teaches the people. There's no mention of that in Matthew or in Luke. And they're astonished at his doctrine. And this time the scribes and the chief priests were not present. But they hear about these things. And again, as I said, it's all getting a little bit too much for them. You get intensity now, don't you, seeing these things. In actual fact, there's three occasions that we find Jesus does this. The first time is actually recorded at the beginning of John's Gospel. In John chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. That's earlier on in Jesus' ministry. And then Palm Sunday goes in and the next day again. And you look at the details, you'll see, although the accounts are very similar, there's distinct differences between the two things. And it's very clear because Mark gives us this and in the evening and in the morning and in the evening and in the morning, we know exactly which days we're looking at. And when evening was come, here we are again, he went out of the city. So now we've got to the evening time, and Jesus then, at the bottom of the chart, leaves, goes back out to Bethany to stay where he was staying uh, with the family of, of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and so on. And then we're told on the next day then, he can, can come back in. So we read in verse 20, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance, saying unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered. Peter noticed it, that all of a sudden this tree is just withered and is dying. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, 
It wasn't that the fig tree didn't have figs because it wasn't supposed to. The problem is that it had leaves, but it didn't have figs. It wasn't bearing fruit. See, the leaves really were an indication that would have suggested that the figs should now be here. When the leaves come, so should the figs, but they weren't. David Guzik makes this comment. He says, there were many trees with only leaves, and these were not cursed. There were many trees with neither leaves nor fruits, and these were not cursed. And this tree was cursed because it professed to have fruits, but did not. Now, there's a great lesson we could look at each of our own lives for that. You know, how often do we profess things, and yet sometimes the fruit really isn't there? Having said that, as a believer, John makes it very clear in his gospel in chapter 15, that if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. Even if you're a nominal Christian, even if you go through life and you don't really serve God as you should, you cannot help but bear fruit. There's a certain individual I know who... um, isn't necessarily the best example um, of a believer. Um, his language is not particularly good, um, and uh, he has a bit of a, an anger management issue, um, and yet he's still a witness. And, and sometimes would say and boldly state things that sometimes even I wouldn't say. Now, that's not to condone those other things because Scripture gives us a lot of teaching about how we should conduct ourselves, how we are ambassadors and we always should be um, representing our God and our King in this realm in which we're living. So it's not to justify those other things. But the point is that if you're a believer, you will bear fruit. There is no such thing as a believer that does not bear fruit. And it's very interesting to do a a study uh, on John chapter 15 and to look at exactly what was being said there. You find that the the ones that do not bear fruit there are the ones that are plucked off, they're cut off, and they're cast into the to the fire. But no, no, it's not possible of any true believer. If you're born again, you will bear fruit. But this tree wasn't bearing fruit. This was a problem. Now, there's definitely a type of Israel that we see here. Israel is likened to a fig tree. Uh, in Joel 1, 7, the Lord actually speaks to them about my tree. This is, this is my tree. This is, the Lord was expecting fruit from Israel. Interestingly, the first time we see figs, they're actually associated with protection. Genesis 3, verse 7. Remember in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, yes, because of their nakedness, but there's also an element of protection involved in why they were wanting to clothe themselves in this way. And you see the same in 1 Kings 4.25, Micah 4.4, this idea of figs associated with peace and protection and security. Now, Israel's primary calling was to be a protection, a covering, if you like, just like those figs in the Garden of Eden. But in this case, a covering for the lineage of the seed of the woman from the Garden of Eden, or from the time of the fall, all the way down to the Messiah being born. And we're given detail of that in Revelation chapter 12, that Israel were to be this covering. We see, see uh, John sees in Revelation this uh, image of a woman that is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. She's clothed with Israel. The woman is not Israel. The woman is clothed with Israel. Why? To protect this nation. To protect this, or this nation rather, to protect this the seed of the woman to ensure safety all the way down, ultimately to Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. But Israel, like a fig, were also to provide sweetness to the world. Now, Israel are also likened to vines. We see that uh, a number of times. Uh, They're actually referred to as a degenerate plant. They should have been a good vine producing fruit. In fact, there's three vines spoken of in Scripture. Israel, that were supposed to lead men to God as a vine. And then we have this vine of the earth spoken of in Revelation which comes all the way down from Babylon and really speaks of all the false religions in the world that purport to be able to lead men to God. And there's one other vine, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the vine. And Jesus is the true vine, if you remember. That's what he said, I am the true vine. And he does lead people to God. 
Israel was supposed to be able to point people towards God. They failed. The vine of the earth certainly could never do that. It was never intended to do that. It was, it was always intended as deception by the devil. But Jesus comes as the true vine. But just as we have that likeness with the, the vines and with grapes and so on, so also with, with figs here. And he said Israel have failed to produce the fruit that it should have done. Again, Joel 1 verse 12 is another reference to that. And so as Jesus sees his fig tree, there's a bigger picture. Because bear in mind, only a couple of days before, Israel should have welcomed him as their Messiah. And they missed the day because they didn't understand prophecy. And Jesus has lamented over Jerusalem and cried and wept over Jerusalem. He goes into the temple on Palm Sunday. He sees totally into the religious practices. And he turns the tables over. He goes out. The next day he comes back in again. And he sees this fig tree on the way in. And he curses it. It's a type of this situation where Israel should have borne fruit. And it failed. Now, just to clarify, because Paul makes it really clear, because we start in the the book of Romans, Paul addresses this issue. And he says, well, what is the benefit of, of being a Jew? What's the benefit of Israel? Oh, he says, much in every way. And he tells us because Israel have given us the law. Israel have given us the word of God. Scripture has been given to us by the Jews. We should be certainly grateful to them for that. And they're also the nation through whom God brought the Messiah into this world and he made covenants and promises with them that will not be broken. But Jesus now responds to Peter's comment and observation about this this fig tree. He says, And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. Notice the statement. Not have faith. Have faith in God. There are so many people out there that have faith in faith. They think if you believe something enough, with enough intensity, you can make it happen. That's not what we're talking about. That's that's just fairy stories. That doesn't really happen. Unfortunately, there's a whole swathe of the church that certainly over the last 20, 30 years got into this kind of prosperity gospel type of thing. This idea that God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy and so on. And just believe it and God will do it. There's some shocking statements that were made about what God apparently is going to do. One who shall remain nameless um, uh, why not? T.D. Jakes, I'm sure you've heard of him. He was preaching once to his congregation and, and just saying that Scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So any challenge that comes to you, you can say so. You, know, just, you, can, you can defend it off. We have no reason to worry or fear or, you know, and anything we want, we can just do. That's not what it's saying at all. Other people misquote Proverbs, which says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so people say, so if you think of it, if you want it enough, you can have it. That's not what Proverbs is saying. Proverbs is saying that the real character of an individual is hidden within their heart. You may not see it on the surface. As a man thinks within his heart, so is he. That's the real person, not the nice veneer we put on the surface. And yet so many people take these scriptures and they twist them and, and so on. Now, Jesus says, have faith in God. That's the issue. It's faith on its own, is, it means nothing. It's faith in God. It's trusting in who God is, what God has promised, in God's nature, in God's character. And Jesus goes on and says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast out into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, if your faith is in God, your priorities are right. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God, which you have to do to have faith in God, 
then you're not going to be just seeking things for your own benefit, for your own blessing or well-being or whatever. You'll be seeking those things which are in accord with God's will. And Jesus says, if we have that kind of faith, then whatever the challenge that lay before us, be it even as a mountain, something that would seem impossible in the natural to remove, oh, God can do it. What an incredible statement of belief and trust in our God. It says, therefore I say unto you that whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Again, another verse that so many have twisted and, and so on. But to, just a couple of comments. Firstly, the promise here of God's answer to a prayer made in faith was made to the disciples, not just to a multitude. This is about those who have a relationship with God. The prayer calling to his will. What is it that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray? First of all, our Father. Where we pray, the first thing we should be praying is to remind ourselves that we are part of a body, part of a family. It's not just about ourselves, not just about what we want or our needs. Our. And then Father, that God is a loving Father. And we're to hallow his name. We're to focus on him and who he is. And then when we pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. You know, as you go on in that prayer that Jesus has given us, that model that we should use, not that we should repeat repetitively, but it's a model, it's a framework with which to pray. As we get into that, we get to a place where we start to pray for ourselves, for our own needs, give us today, and so on. And deliver us from, you know, so there's a right place to pray for things for ourselves, but it's always in context. It's certainly not a prayer that unbelievers can pray. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says this, nor should we interpret this to mean if you pray hard enough and really believe God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what you ask. That kind of faith is not faith in God. Rather, it's faith. It's nothing but faith in faith or faith in feelings. That means nothing. But when you stand praying, forgive. Interesting here that we're actually given some conditions if our prayers are to be successful there are conditions involved in praying firstly we could go to psalm 66 18 which tells us if we regard iniquity in our heart god will not hear if you've got any unconfessed sin or anything you're not dealing with in your life it says that god will not hear and it's not that god doesn't want to hear we've said this a number of times in the past but it's that god will not and cannot allow anything that is impure unholy into heaven no place for it there and if you're going before the throne of god with unconfessed sin in your heart the door shuts god says i cannot hear you First, we have to come and we have to confess our sin. But we have a great promise that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It just takes a moment. But we can't go into his presence if we regard iniquity, if there's things that we are holding on to that we know we shouldn't. Peter reminds us how important it is for a husband and a wife to be in agreement, to understand each other's roles and to love each other as scripture shows we should, that our prayers be not hindered. And then we have this example here, that if we have anybody that's wronged us, it says, forgive if you have outs against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespass. And then this kind of chilling verse. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Jesus is saying, there's a situation that could occur where God would refuse to forgive you. And that is if you refuse to forgive someone else. Now, we have to do a little detour here because Matthew 
gives us a really clear explanation of this whole principle. Matthew 18, picking up verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take, take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Jesus giving us this parable, just trying to illustrate the point. Now, what is 10,000 talents? You and I, you know, we don't understand the ancient Middle Eastern ways of accounting and money and so on. So let me help you with this. 300 denarii was considered a year's wage. One talent was 15 years' wages. 800 talents was the yearly tax on Israel by Rome. That's recorded by Josephus. So the kind of this governmental tax that Rome had put onto the nation of Israel. So we're talking about 15 years' wages times 10,000. So we're talking about 150,000 years of labor is owed to the king by this individual. You just kind of start to see a bit of a problem here. And we're told, before as much as he had not to pay his Lord, of course, because there's no way he could pay this debt. I don't know what he'd done to rack this debt up, but it was massive. His Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. And by the way, that is what sin will do. Sin doesn't just come and, and just gnaw away at you. It does that. But it does so much more. It will, as Job says, consume all your increase. And it won't just consume you, it will consume your family, your children. Well, sin is a horrible thing. But that aside. Verse 26, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. A ridiculous statement, given how much he owed. There is no way this servant could pay all. And the king knew that he couldn't pay all. But he was desperate. Absolutely desperate. He saw no way out of his predicament. And we're told, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Can you imagine the joy in that servant's life when this debt that was just looming over him was so huge that he could never pay it? And suddenly it's wiped clean and he's allowed to go free. Well, of course, that's what Christ has done for us. We had a debt that was so big, so great, that there is no way we could pay it. And even to try and pay it was an insult. The word loose there, by the way, in the Greek quite sure how we should pronounce it but you can see there's a apulu or something like that but it means to free fully it really is grace completely and utterly free this debt is wiped clean i told in ephesians for by grace are you saved through faith and you don't want that faith to be in faith you want that faith to be in god and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You see, this king in this parable, it was his choice. And he chooses to forgive this debt in the same way as our God has chosen to forgive our debt. Why? Because, of course, Jesus came and paid the price in our place. And we're told not of works, not our works. We can do anything to contribute it, lest any man should boast. And nobody will be in heaven and, and claim it's because they were good or they were righteous. Or we're all sinners falling short of the glory of God. But then in verse 28, we get this. But the same servant, you'd think rejoicing now, went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence and laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying pay me that thou owest this is the equivalent of 15 pounds okay at that time in that culture he's been given forgiven a debt that was effectively 150,000 years wages 
He'd never be able to pay. And he goes out and finds someone now that owes him just 15 pounds. And he lays his hands on him. He says, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Well, a, a true statement. He probably could have done, given enough time. It wasn't that big a debt. But verse 30 says, and he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Was he legally allowed to do this? Yeah, of course. You see, this individual did owe him money. And in that time, he could have quite easily said, if you can't pay me the debt that you owe me now, then you're going to go to prison for it. And this is what happens. You see, legally, according to the law, he was well within his rights to do this. But that's the real issue. Because Romans 10 verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. You see, we were once under the law and we were going to be judged under the law. But we've been set free from the curse of the law. Galatians 3 Verse 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Challenging the Galatian Christians, saying, you know, you've been saved, not because of anything you've done, but because of God's goodness and His grace. So are you now going to try and stay right with God or do what you do by your own efforts? And the same applies in this situation. This individual has been forgiven purely on the basis of grace. Remember in Matthew 6, we read this prayer that Jesus gave us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he goes on and says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, back into Matthew 18, we read, So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord, this is the king, all that was done. And then his Lord, after that he called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Because thou desirest me. Should not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. Like never. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts, and that's the challenge, isn't it? From your hearts, forgive not everyone his brother, their trespasses. You see, Ephesians reminds us, Ephesians 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You see, this individual was absolutely justified to claim or to, to try and get this money that was owed to him. Because he wanted to apply the law. But you see, he'd been forgiven under the basis of grace. And we have to choose where we want to be. If you want to be under the law, well, that's fine. You can go and claim everything that's owed to you. But you'll be judged under the law. Well, that's not so good because none of us then could stand. But if you want to stand by grace, then we have to apply grace. You're either under the law or under grace. You can't be both. Oswald Chambers said this, Jesus says we must be prepared to be limited fools in the sight of others in order to further our spiritual character. If we aren't willing to give up wrong things only for Jesus, never let us talk about being in love with him. We say, why shouldn't I? There's no harm in it. For pity's sake, go and do it. But remember that the construction of a spiritual character is doomed when once we take that line. Anyone will give up wrong things if he knows how, but are we prepared to give up the best we have for Jesus? The only right a Christian has is the right to give up his rights. 
I want to read this to you because this really struck me some years ago when I first read it. I appreciate the print, maybe a bit small, you might see it at the back, but there's something that came through from Voice of the Martyrs. And this is um, Damaya, a young slave boy, had his knees and feet nailed to a board and was left to die just for attending a church service. Miraculously, he survived and told Voice of the Martyrs that he forgave his cruel tormentor because Jesus was nailed and forgave him. Kind of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, people have wronged us and people will continually wrong us. What do we do with it? Do we apply the law? Which we're entitled to do. But remember, if you apply the law, you have to live under the law. You'll be judged under the law. And none of us could stand. Or if you apply grace, you'll be judged according to grace. Oswald Chambers again makes this comment. He says, Jesus Christ demands that the heart of a disciple be fathomlessly pure. And unless he can give me his disposition, his teaching is tantalizing. If all he came to do was to mock me by telling me to be what I know I can never be, I can afford to ignore him. But if he can give me his own disposition of holiness, then I begin to see how I lay my account with purity. Jesus Christ is the sternest and the gentlest of saviors. You see, it's not about you coming up with the the courage to forgive somebody, even though it seems hard. It's the fact that God will put within you something that was not there before. God will give you the ability to forgive someone else. Because God will give you that grace in the same way that God gives us the love to love people who are unlovely. And even the love to love people who are lovely. Because often love, when we talk about it from a human perspective, is all about what I can get for me. But true love is about what I can give. And you can't give something you don't have. When God, through his spirit, places within you that love, you can give that love unconditionally. You can show that grace unconditionally. You see, don't go home from here thinking you've got to try harder. That's not the solution to the problem. It's about letting go and letting God. It's about being still. There's a word that Linda shared with us I think the last time she was here. We've got to let go, let God. That work of sanctification, God doing that working us, giving us that love, giving us that grace. But we have to forgive. 2 Timothy 2, Timothy 2 verse 1 says, Thou therefore be, uh, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let it overwhelm you, let it fill you. It's a grace that goes beyond the natural, that gives you the ability to keep going when in the natural you say, I've had enough, I'm not doing this anymore. Why should I do this if... Fill in the blank. Well, that grace gives you the strength to carry on. Even if you're the only one serving God in a particular situation or a particular environment, if you're the only one, God's grace is sufficient. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. It's not just a throne. It's the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy. And see first that we obtain mercy. That our debt, our sin is forgiven. And when we're cleansed and when we're forgiven, our debt is gone. We then find the grace to help in time of need. When we put in those situations, we have to show that grace to others. Well, we go to the throne of grace and we're reminded of the grace that's been shown to us and we can then show that to others. And it's not a challenge, it's not a chore, it's not a difficult thing. Back to Mark. And they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, they came to him, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now these guys are now not happy at all. They are very displeased that all these things have been going on. And they said unto him, 
They're running out of things to say, by the way. But they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? Talking, of course, of turn the tables over and things, two days running. Who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I'll also ask of you one question. And answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. See, of course, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up one way or another. And Jesus just says, like, okay, fine, I'll answer your question, but just do me a favor. Do answer my question first, if you don't mind. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. You know, was John appointed by God? Or was it just a, a man thing? Was he just speaking of his own ideas and things? David Guzik makes this comment. It says, when Jesus asked them to answer the question regarding John the Baptist, he was not evading their question. If John really was from God, then he was right about Jesus, and Jesus was indeed the Messiah. If what John said was true, then Jesus had all authority. You see why Jesus asked that particular question. He put them in a very, very difficult position. And they reasoned with themselves. They went away, they talked about it, they said, well, we can't say, you know, if we say, if we should say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? Or if we should say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, oh, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering, said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. You want to answer my question? I'm not going to answer yours. See you later. That's uh, the end of chapter 11. We'll pick up chapter 12 next week. Read ahead. And Lord willing, we'll just uh, carry on this journey. Only another four chapters to go uh, in this incredible gospel. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We do thank you that we have been saved by grace, Lord. We recognize that we've been forgiven a debt that we could never have paid. And Lord, give us the grace to forgive others. Give us the grace, Lord, to, to lay down the right to ourselves. And Lord, that through those things that you will be glorified. That Father, as we trust you, Lord, you will fight all of our battles. Father, as we seek you, that Father, you would do that work of sanctification in us. Father, we do just ask that you stir our hearts for you. Lord, help us to be reminded continually of what you have done for us and lord let that overflow into the way we act and deal around other people well we just ask these things this morning in jesus name amen okay may god richly bless you through this coming week let's uh, spend some time fellowshipping together over teas and coffees